The Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out.
the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another. And Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. 
And so, a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard, in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz. And the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11, we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people. Rather, he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land and he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition and it helps us understand understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment, first on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt, useless stick or as a rebellious wife, or as a dangerous, raging lion that gets captured, or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable. They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel, and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols. And so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives them the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. And so in the next video, we'll explore Ezekiel's profound vision of hope. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Ezekiel. Good morning, Sherman Street. 
So we're talking about Ezekiel today and we only showed you one of the two Bible Project videos. The other one, you should be able to find a link for it in the email. So you can uh, take a look at that on your own time. Maybe as you read through the book, um, hopefully you are continuing to read and getting your stickers. Uh, so um, this week, sorry, my table's making noise. This week, uh, I was thinking about this passage and I just kept thinking about this strange thing that our faith continually muddies the line between life and death. Um, our story begins with God creating life and warning the people, if you eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will certainly die. And they did, of course, eat the fruit, but they didn't drop dead on the spot. Instead, they separated themselves from God. And in that separation, death entered the scene in a much more pervasive way than just Adam and Eve's funerals. Now, it seems like we can all experience some form of death even while we're still living. And there's something, that's kind of a thing that we all know about, even if we can't quite articulate how it's true. And there are people whose blood still pumps through their veins, but they would tell you that they died a long time ago. Like in Les Mis, uh, Fantine sings that, right? She is reduced to poverty. She sells her hair and then her teeth and then her body in order to provide for her daughter. And she sings about her Johns, she says, don't they know they're making love to one already dead? Somehow that, somehow this not dead death is connected to sin. Not necessarily our individual sin, though sometimes it is. Um, it's more like the sin in the air, the condition of the world and of those around us. We bear our own sin and that of our neighbors and that of our leaders and that of the systems that we've put together. And the impact of it all reverberates around the world. Some of us are a little bit more protected from it than others, uh, but we all know what it's like to die before we're dead. I was reading a book this week by the preacher, professor, and writer Luke Powery, um, and he distinguishes between the big death that we experience at the end of our lives and little deaths that we experience every day, which he says may be the more painful of the two. He says, little deaths foreshadow our last death, and reveal how we are dying on a regular basis, even in the midst of our living. And those little deaths can be any number of things, sickness, disability, transition, failure, loss, injustice. Um, and I think both sides of injustice, right? Experiencing the injustice and also perpetrating it is a form of death. Um, they are anything that is opposed to what God wills for this life. And if we're willing to face it, we can see that while there's a lot of goodness and beauty in this world, it is also true that like Ezekiel's vision, we are surrounded by death, dry bones in every direction. Life is full of death. And of course, when Jesus came, he muddied the line in the other direction. Instead of bringing death into life, he brought life into death. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall live even though they die. Not too long after that, Jesus died, but just for a moment. And then he came back to life, conquering the power of sin and death. So now, not only can we die while we're living, we can also live while we're living, and we can live after we've died. At the hospital, they will declare a time of death as though the line were clear. 
But in the Christian story, death and life are much more of a spectrum or maybe like a Venn diagram, like they're overlapping realities. And I think, honestly, we're not always sure what side of the diagram we're on. Our feelings aren't always that trustworthy. Like Eve, thinking that the forbidden fruit might bring life, often we're deceived. I imagine that at a white supremacist rally, when people are feeling amped up on power and superiority, they might tell you that it makes them feel alive. But anyone looking from the outside can tell you that there is death there. Like in Proverbs chapter 9, when Lady Folly calls people into her home, she said, it says, To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. The people in Ezekiel had lost sight of where life comes from as well. Um, the full, whole first half of the book, or maybe more, um, is about how they had fallen in love with idols and started to count on them for life. And they were so convinced that their idols would give life that they started to sacrifice their children to them. Like clearly from the outside, you can see that there is a problem, but we are often deceived. And the crazy part, maybe the scary part, is that while God does not cause us to sin, God may very well lead us to experience the death that comes of our sin. It is the spirit of God who takes Ezekiel to the Valley of Dry Bones and leads him back and forth in it so that he can fully take stock of the situation. And those bones, God says, represent the Israelites who are experiencing the little death of exile. Not physical death, but one of those living deaths. And that is also by God's hand. Um, someone said something interesting to me this week. They were talking about their own discernment, just about life choices, and said that they can feel confident of their choices because they know that God will correct them when they go wrong and, and will always correct them in a way they can understand. I appreciated that and think it's true. Um, that means that the way you are corrected may be different than the way that I am corrected, but in either case, it will be in a way that we can understand. And God tried prophets with the Israelites, people who spoke their language, lived their lives, practiced their faith, and you would think that they would understand that, but they didn't, or they didn't want to. And so exile was a correction they could grasp. Uh, for me, I see that in my prayer life quite clearly. It seems that the correction that I can understand is like a lot of angst and emotional turmoil, and it pretty quickly turns me back to prayer. Um, Tony can see a pretty distinct change in my disposition when I haven't been praying, and he used to ask me, like, how long has it been since you've been in prayer? Uh, and I don't mean like praying as I'm like wandering around. I do that a lot, but I mean like sitting in the presence of God. Uh, I don't know if God is like actively causing that like emotional turmoil for me or just letting me bear the consequences of when those times that I try to live a life apart from God. But whichever it is, that little taste of death is very effective in drawing me back to the giver of life. And honestly, I'm grateful for it after the fact, <laughs> not usually during. Um, Ezekiel's very visceral vision on behalf of the Israelites reminds us that though death is an ever-present reality, a power even, active in our lives in small and big ways, 
it remains true, even if our God may use death to provoke us, to shake us out of our stupor, our God remains the God of resurrection, the God of the living. The one who first breathed life into human nostrils, and here in Ezekiel does it again to bring back the life that has been lost. Our God is the one who brings the dead back to life, not by avoiding death, but by going right through it. Some Christians want to avoid death. We talked about that last week as we talked about how uncomfortable Christians often are in the face of suffering, whether it's theirs or someone else's. Um, I remember Tony, um, it was a long time ago. I don't remember the details at all, but at some point in our relationship, I think we were just dating, Tony was feeling really convicted about something. Um, and he was feeling badly. So I like tried to cheer him up. I said like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. At least you didn't do whatever this is. It's really not that big of a deal. And he actually stopped me mid cheer up. Um, he said, actually, this is like a really important space for me and I don't want to brush it aside. He didn't say it in so many words, but it was like he was saying, I need to walk through this death in order to find the life that's on the other side. I don't want to sidestep it. It seems as though our God, faced with the entrance of death into God's beloved creation, has appropriated death as one of the tools of life. Like swords turned into farming tools, in the hands of a God of resurrection, death is no longer something to fear because God may just turn and use that very thing to bring us back to life and back to God, which it turns out is the same thing. Um, I once heard this clip of a Sikh preacher on Facebook. I know very little about the Sikh faith and I didn't even know they had preachers, um, but she was really a powerful speaker and the clip was going around. Anyway, she said something like, maybe this darkness isn't the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. It was such, so hopeful and powerful and such good writing. <laughs> but it also struck me that Christians don't need to make that distinction. Because of the work of Jesus, the darkness and the, of the tomb and the darkness of the womb are one and the same. New life comes from both. Everything is being gathered up for the sake of life. For those who follow the resurrected one, there are no dead ends, no final stopping points. There are no hopeless places. Everything can be made new. And so when we're in a space that feels just completely barren and hopeless, I think it wise to take on our lips the words of Ezekiel 37. Can these bones live? Even these dry bones, can they live? I love Ezekiel's answer to that question. He says, sovereign Lord, only you know. And you can't really hear how Ezekiel is experiencing this whole thing in that answer, right? He could be resigned to like, oh, whatever. He could, maybe he's given up. He could be submissive, uh, kind of giving all the power to God, or he could be angry at what he's experiencing. Um, he doesn't say, like, obviously not, they're dead, like beyond dead, dried up. But he also doesn't shout, like, of course, God, you're in charge. He just says, God only knows. Only you know. There's just the smallest of flicker of hope in his answer. 
And God's question provokes hope for me when I think about all the dry bones that I see around me. Um, like, let's think about the planet for a minute. I mean, COVID is really bad, but it is provoked by the much larger problem of climate change, as are the wildfires and the stronger storms that we're seeing. Scientists have been warning us for years that destruction is nigh if we don't change our ways. Like, sounds a little bit like Ezekiel, actually. And we know that that destruction will hurt the poorest of the poor the most. But I, even as someone who cares deeply about the health of God's creation and the flourishing of it and the poorest of the poor, um, I still drive around and eat too much meat and fly to see my family and I have air conditioning. As a society, we pretend to recycle, but we can, but we hardly do that because there's too big of a price tag. Things are packaged in these huge containers because we think bigger is better and so companies sell it to us and we buy it. Plastic is everywhere, even though we kind of know about the huge plastic islands floating in the ocean. Our government is sort of starting to make changes, but we are caught in this weird toddler battle of like, well, if China doesn't do it, I'm not going to do it either. Do you know that since 1970, so that's like 50 years from now, um, since 1970, we have wiped out 60% of all wildlife. All wildlife, mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, 60% of them are gone. That's a lot of dry bones. So what do you think, Sherman Street? Can these bones live? It seems like there is no answer, but Lord, only you know. We can point to any number of societal woes that seem incredibly complicated and overwhelming and ask the same question and come to this very tentative faith, right? Just a flicker of hope. It's also true that as individuals, we live through these little deaths all the time. You're probably facing some kind of death in your own life now. Some pain that hurts and drags you down and that shouldn't be. What do you think about all the dry bones around you? Can these bones live? I don't know how things will turn out in any of these situations, but I am grateful to believe in and serve a God of resurrection. We don't get to brush our suffering aside or sidestep the death of the world, but our God seems determined to carry us through the deaths that we are facing, that we might find the life that is on the other side. And we come out of those spaces with the power of having gone through them, right? The power of love, empathy, understanding, the power of character and hope, the power of new knowledge gained, so that the death that you have lived through becomes again a tool for bringing life to others. For whatever reason, our God is not content to do this work alone, but calls us into it. The death that Ezekiel sees in the bones that are all around him is the death of Israel's exile, which is Ezekiel's exile. Along with many others, it is his bones that he's looking at. He is one of the Jews that was taken into Babylon in the first wave of exiles from Judah. It is his own temple that was destroyed, his own people displaced, his home invaded and taken over, his own people who have not been faithful to the God that he knows and proclaims. It is his own death 
that he is seeing alongside the death of his people. And right in the midst of it all, God calls him to see clearly the truth that he is facing, death and dry bones in every direction. And then God calls him to become an instrument of hope and healing in it. God calls Ezekiel to speak life to the bones. Prophesy, son of man, God says. And as he speaks, Ezekiel watches God work through Ezekiel's own words. As I prophesied, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone, and then tendons and flesh and skin. And then God says to Ezekiel, speak again. And as he does, the breath of life, the breath of God, fills the people and makes them alive. It's all a vision for what God will offer to the exiled Israelites. My people, God says through Ezekiel again, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you out of them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. In the midst of death, Ezekiel becomes a giver of life, like his God. And all of this is our calling as Christians. As the body of Christ in this world, we bear the spirit of the Lord like Ezekiel. The same spirit which Paul says is the same spirit that brought Christ Jesus back from the dead. We bear the life of God in us. And we are called and empowered to bring life to the dry bones all around us. Ezekiel is a prophet. So he brings life in word and speech. The way you bring life will be particular to you. Some of you will stand against injustice. Some of you will teach. Some of you will bring meals and flowers and ease the burden of death for someone else. Someone, some of you will offer a much needed word of kindness or a listening ear. Some of you will plant a tree and care for the earth. Some of you will work to right a broken relationship. There are so many deaths in this world. There are so many ways to bring life. As we follow Christ, we do as he did. We bear the burdens of the world together and we nurture the life in it. We have been reconciled, so we reconcile. We have been loved, and so we love. We have been given new life, and so we give new life to others. It's all God's work in the end, as it is God's breath breathed into the dry bones that finally brings them to life. But for whatever reason, God chooses to do this work through us. And we can know that every bit of death that we have faced, that we face now, that we will face in the future, will somehow be reshaped into a tool for life. Though there are dry bones all around, our God is the God of resurrection and will use everything, everything, to bring new life. Please pray with me. Lord, may we be life givers as you are. May we see um, through our actions and the power of your spirit, your work in this world. May we see dry bones come together bone to bone, covered with tendons and flesh and skin, 
breathing new life into them, that they may stand on their feet. Lord, bring life and use us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.